Today, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Douglas Guilfoyle, who will discuss Australian war crimes in Afghanistan, command responsibility, national mechanisms, and positive complementarity. And before I introduce our speaker, just a couple of words on our work at OTGR and the housekeeping rules for today. Oxford Transitional Justice Research is an interdisciplinary network of students and academics who are working on issues of transition in societies that are recovering from conflict and or repressive rule. And we were found in 2007. We have been growing strong since then. And today we're a vast and diverse academic community conducting research in the field. We connect practical, legal, and policy perspectives, and we are looking at transitional justice through the lenses of law, criminology, development, political theory, socio-legal studies, history, and anthropology. You can follow our microsite on the law faculty website for news on our events, on our research portfolio, and our collaborations with justiceinfo.net. As to housekeeping rules, you are muted upon entry into this room and please make sure to remain muted throughout the presentation. There is going to be a dedicated Q&A session at the end, so you'll be able to ask your questions. You can either raise your hand or you can type your question in the chat. You can either do this in the general chat or send your questions to Kathy, our co my co-convener, or to myself. Um, so in case you're unable to ask your question directly, you can also type your entire question and then say that you would like the moderator to read it out. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Douglas Guilfoyle is Associate Professor of International and Security Law at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, University of New South Wales, Canberra. His principal areas of research are maritime security, the international law of the sea, and international and transnational criminal law. He was previously a professor of law at Monash University, a reader in law at University College London, and has acted as a consultant to various governments and international organizations. In 2019-2020, he was a visiting legal fellow at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And he's a regular contributor to the blog Eagle Talk, for which we're all very grateful. Thank you very much for being with us, and the floor is now yours. Uh, well, thank you very much, um, Gayathari and Svetlana, for inviting me. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. Um, as uh, an Australian um, present in Australia, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Ngunnawal people. Um, the traditional custodians of the place from which I'm taking part in this meeting and acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. So um, I'm speaking on a rather um, serious topic today, obviously, um, alleged Australian war crimes in Afghanistan, questions of command responsibility, national mechanisms and positive complementarity. I hope to speak for no more than 45 minutes and I invite the conveners to wave at me vigorously at about that time point if I'm going on too far and then I'd be very interested in hearing your perspectives on the material I'm going to present and answering any questions I can to the best of my ability. All right so the first and perfectly reasonable question is if I can get my slides to work um, what is the Brereton report? So the, the photo I'm framing this around is the uh, Chief of the Australian Defence Force, General Angus Campbell's press conference um, at the 
uh, Australian Defence Force officers in Russell, uh, Russell in Canberra, where in November he released the final report of a long-running inquiry into alleged Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. So it's now widely known as the Brereton Report after the head of the inquiry, Justice Brereton of the uh, Supreme Court of New South Wales in Sydney, but who is also, also holds a commission in uh, the Australian Army Reserves. The report was commissioned by the Inspector General of the Australian uh, Defence Force, which is an independent uh, investigatory and disciplinary um, office, uh, a separate statutory office outside the military chain of command. So on releasing the report, uh, General Campbell acknowledged that uh, the contents of the report, which I'll come to, um, have damaged uh, Australia's moral authority as a military force, but emphasised that many thousands of Australians served in Afghanistan and did the right thing professionally and with honour, including many of our special forces personnel. Nonetheless, um, the unredacted portions of the report, and there are substantial redactions uh, for reasons of um, not just uh, privacy, but also to, to avoid prejudicing um, further possible prosecutions. But there are sections of the unredacted report which open essentially with um, the following events constitute some of the most, if not the most shocking crimes alleged against Australian service personnel in Australia's history. Um, so it makes for very grim reading, even with some of the detail still not being available. All right, so what do I want to cover in this presentation? Uh, so I want to offer a, a timeline of the events that lead up to that press conference uh, last November. I want to speak a little bit about the nature of the alleged crimes. Uh, I want particularly to dwell uh, on the um, controversy around the extent to which there should or could be prosecutions based on command responsibility coming out of this report. Um, I then want to look go back a little deeper into um, some of the facts as we understand them now and what was known at the relevant times. And then as a lawyer, uh, I, I want to get into the nitty gritty a little. I want to talk about the applicable Australian and international law and the extent to which they mirror each other or don't. And in particular, I want to come right down to the critical step in applying the divergent branches of the law being um, the mens rea or the uh, mental component of the crime required, the mental state required to be a responsible commander under the doctrine of command responsibility. And I also want to address the policy question, how far up the chain of command should responsibility for war crimes committed in the field extend? Um, we often address command responsibility as international lawyers in a more abstract or global sense and don't necessarily disaggregate it in that fashion. And time permitting, I want to offer just a few brief words about whether the Brereton Report and the follow-up to it constitutes an example of positive complementarity in the relationship between Australia and the International Criminal Court. All right, let me turn to um, the timeline. So uh, in terms of general background, there has been one attempted prosecution of alleged Australian war crimes uh, in uh, the past and uh, or in the recent past. So in 2011, there was a court martial into what was called a civilian casualty incident uh, in which two soldiers were accused of the uh, ordinary crime. And I'll come back to what I mean by that of negligent manslaughter. So that is 
rather than being charged with a war crime under the relevant Australian war crimes legislation, they were charged with a disciplinary offence uh, under the Australian Defence Force legislation, um, which as it were imports ordinary crimes into disciplinary offences. And the difficulty in this case, which revolved around um, two patrol members uh, throwing fragmentation grenades into an occupied building uh, from which they were coming under fire was whether they had known of the presence of civilians and in particular two children who were killed in the course of that incident. And uh, the case essentially fell over because uh, it was found that one couldn't apply, uh, and I'm simplifying a great deal, the law of negligent manslaughter to a battlefield, that the, the whole charge was misconstrued. And in a sense, the reason the defence prosecutor had gone to negligent manslaughter was the mental state for willful killing or you know, deliberate targeting of civilians was on the facts going to be too hard to make out. It was a confused heat of battle situation. So I raise this in the sense that you know, Australia has at least on one occasion recently turned its mind to the difficulty of prosecuting um, potential or alleged heat of battle offences. All right. Um, documents which have been subsequently leaked suggest that at least by 2013, 2014, uh, the Defence Department was aware that there were quote unquote problems emerging with the organisational culture of Australian Special Forces and particularly the SAS, the Special Air Service, uh, the other branch of our Special Forces being um, commandos. Okay. In 2016, these rumours reached the point where an independent um, military sociologist, uh, Dr. Samantha Crumpets, was commissioned to report into the organisational culture of the Australian SAS. And she received, while compiling that report, as it were, unprompted disclosures relating to the killings of unarmed civilians, um, which would obviously make out uh, a war crime of um, willful killing or murder. Now that in turn then led to the uh, Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, the independent statutory office holder I've already mentioned, appointing Paul, Paul Brereton, a Justice of the New South Wales Court of Appeal and a Major General in the Australian Army Reserves to inquire into these matters. And that inquiry was obviously long running because it did not report until the end of 2019. So, by the time the, his inquiry is on foot in 2017, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation begins its uh, series of reports called the Afghan Files, which bring whistleblower accounts and leaked documents of Australian Special Forces conduct in Afghanistan um, to the general Australian public. And again, we're obviously focusing on a um, minority within the SAS uh, but there are questions obviously to be answered about how the broader institution didn't catch up with what they were doing. Um, and in particular, in March 2019, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation broadcasts private helmet camera footage. There was no requirement that the individual wear such a helmet camera of Australian SAS troops, uh, of an SAS trooper executing an unarmed man in a field. Uh, so this was incontrovertible evidence of a prima facie war crime. It was broadcast on national television by the national broadcaster and was generally reported as having sent shock shockwaves through Australia's defence and military establishment, and rightly so. 
All right, so um, we then get to the point where in uh, November, the Brereton Inquiry is found credible. What it, the Brereton Inquiry, it's important to say, was not a criminal investigation. It was actually an express part of uh, Justice Brereton's brief that he could not make findings of criminal responsibility. That was not his job. He was, however, to look for credible information which would suggest that crimes occurred. And on that basis, uh, the report um, identifies 39 uh, individual killings involving 25 Australians. And Brereton, within his brief, recommends that those cases be referred for prosecution before civilian courts. Um, and that's potentially significant, but the reasoning appears to be that by the time uh, Justice Brereton reported, a number of the uh, individuals under suspicion had left the Australian Defence Force and wouldn't be amenable to military discipline. And that if these cases were to be heard, it would be preferable that they all be heard within the one system. And therefore, by default, that was going to need to be the civilian system. But on top of that, certain, um, certain uh, considerations of transparency and accountability and what the Australian public would expect of people who had served in its name uh, weighed in Justice Brereton's opinion in favour of prosecution before the ordinary courts. In response to this, the um, Australian Prime Minister, indeed, uh, I believe the timing was such that um, this was announced, I might be wrong, but I believe the establishment of the Office of the Special Investigator was announced before uh, the report was officially released. So the Australian political community, the government was preparing Australians for the fact that when the report came out, there would be um, matters that would uh, require criminal investigation. And the mechanism established has been the Office of the Special Investigator. So it will be a new task force sitting within our um, Department of Home Affairs. Its job will be to conduct criminal investigations to prepare briefs of evidence to a criminal standard and then refer individual cases to um, the Australian Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, our equivalent of the Federal Director of Public Prosecutions. Um, oh, I should say on that, uh, the Special Investigator has now been appointed. Uh, it's Justice uh, Mark Weinberg, a very significant Australian judicial figure who himself has been in the past the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions a criminal law judge of the Supreme Court of Victoria and a judge within the Australian federal court system. It would be hard to find someone uh, more experienced. All right, so what are the crimes that have been alleged? The report itself investigates essentially two categories of civilian death. Um, the first appear to uh, involve at best very liberal interpretations of uh, rules of engagement, meaning that any um, service age male running from a compound of interest could be targeted and these people running away were called squirters and in uh, reports filled in and passed up the chain of command they were normally described as uh, you know uh, it was believed that they were moving to gain higher ground and a tactical advantage or potentially running for a weapons cache or to alert others. Um, a separate and related category were so-called spotters uh, people who could have been in a position in order to report on the movements of um, enemy troops. And the second and more disturbing category was uh, the straightforward killing of persons um, hors de combat 
or under Australian control outside the heat of battle. So this is the execution of persons who no longer pose any threat to Australian forces and are under their control. Uh, the report, um, perhaps for obvious reasons, focuses most of its attention on that second category because they're simply clear cut, as opposed to the 2011 um, civilian casualty inquiry, there's no heat of battle question. There's no question about um, fog of war or uh, confusing confusion as to the status of these individuals or their targetability under international humanitarian law. So um, as I've already said, the report identifies 39 killings which appear to be clearly unlawful and refers 25 Australian personnel for prosecution. All right, so uh, just a little more on this, this question of the, the targeting of so-called squirters and spotters, those who are running away or those who are potentially acting as a lookout. Um, the report details very worrying evidence of a practice of carrying, uh, and the term used was throwdowns. So these were typically small radio communication devices or foreign small arms uh, to plant on unarmed bodies. So this was essentially falsifying post-incident reporting um, such that uh, there appeared to be greater compliance with rules of engagement than there actually were, or to portray persons who, is, who had been killed as being targetable. Now, obviously, as, as we know in the study of um, international humanitarian law, uh, if someone targets a civilian based on a genuine and reasonable mistake of fact as to their status, then arg arguably, or indeed perhaps definitely, there has been no war crime, right? But this is after the fact, making things look far more certain than they were. And we'll come to some of the reasons for that. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so the, the, the essence of this was to allow in post-operation reporting these persons to have been depicted as direct participants in hostilities and therefore very obviously targetable. And one of the reasons that prosecuting any of these incidents will be very difficult is that you would have to prove the mental state at the time of targeting. The fact that you are carrying throwdowns around to conceal any mistakes doesn't necessarily prove that you went out into the field with the intention to kill um, civilians who were not participating in hostilities. And indeed, part of the Brereton Report's um, way of treating this information is to say that there is definitely misconduct involved here, but it's disciplinary misconduct. These are people who had decided that higher command was asking too many questions about operations in the field and they needed to present tidier reports and do, carrying throwdowns was a part of that. Uh, so, you know, as it were, there's a guilty mental state, but it goes to a disciplinary offence and not to murder. That's the approach taken in the Brereton Report to these incidents. Uh, yes, so the phrase, the phrase used in the report is actually war on higher command, that some in the field had, got, had felt that um, higher command was acting uh, in a way that was undermining operational effectiveness at the front line, that wasn't trusting people to do their job, and that really the only appropriate response was to uh, tell commanders further up the chain of command what they wanted to hear and keep them off your back. All right, so the particular controversy that I want to address in part is the question of command responsibility. And page 31 of the Brereton Report um, says something which uh, the veterans community in Australia has um, had a great deal of difficulty swallowing and that has caused a degree of anger. And that was the express finding that the inquiry has found no evidence that there was knowledge of or reckless indifference to 
the commission of war crimes on the part of commanders at troop or platoon, squadron or company or task group headquarters level, let alone at higher levels, nor any failure at any of those levels to take reasonable and practical steps that would have prevented or detected the commission of war crimes. The detailed superintendence and control of subordinates is inconsistent with the theory of mission command espoused by the Australian Army, whereby subordinates are empowered and entrusted to implement their superior commander's intent. This is all the more so in a special forces context where higher levels of responsibility are entrusted to patrol commanders. Um, now, one can take issue with a number of elements of this, but it was most pithily put by uh, a journalist at um, the press conference where the report was released, which his statement was effectively, are we to believe that no one between the rank of Lieutenant and Lieutenant General knew what was going on? That this all stops firewalled at the patrol commander level, at the level of a non-commissioned officer. We'll come to that. Um, and uh, certainly um, the phrase, no evidence that there was knowledge of or reckless indifference to is a direct finding that goes to the Australian standard of command responsibility. Uh, uh, so the theory of command responsibility espoused in the Brereton Report is certainly uh, there may have been moral failures by higher levels of command, some of which should result perhaps in administrative or disciplinary sanction because these things happen on your watch and you bear moral responsibility. But it was determined, or the Brereton Report suggests that there should be no responsibility above the patrol commander level. Uh, and I'll come to some of the reasons that make that uh, at least superficially plausible. Um, obviously, the second half of the statement, a number of us might have rather more difficulty with, which is essentially to say, the way we have chosen to organize ourselves as a professional body makes compliance with the law difficult and therefore we should be excused it. Now that's not, uh, as I've put it in some of my blog posts, a statement we would accept if it were made, for example, by surgeons in relation to negligent killing. Um, but nonetheless, it's something that uh, Justice Brereton put out. Uh, nonetheless, there'll be some sympathy shown in some of the case law uh, for this vision of where responsibility stops, uh, which I'll come to. All right, so what were the facts? Okay, I mean, to start with, the, the thing to, of course, always remind oneself about Afghanistan, particularly if you're an armchair uh, observer, um, as I am, is that it presents some of the most uh, inhospitable, challenging and daunting terrain for military operations in the world, where if you're operating close to the ground, those in one valley might not have any line of sight to what is happening one valley over. And I hope this image helps illustrate that difficulty of maintaining line of sight, even if you have uh, drones or other aerial support um, in place. It also appears that the longer Australian operations ran in Afghanistan, there was a degree of unhealthy rivalry between uh, the Special Air Service and the commandos. Um, so there's two different branches of special forces, perhaps, um, wanting to outdo each other, not in the entirety of each service, um, but groups within. Um, certainly within a subset of uh, the Special Air Service, there was um, the development of what the report calls a warrior culture, including uh, rather horrifically a practice of blooding, whereby a new patrol member, so someone on their first deployment in Afghanistan would be told by their patrol leader to execute someone in order to achieve their first kill. Um, and one of the reasons that Brereton gives uh, that is certainly um, plausible for how this culture developed 
uh, was, and the report uses this terminology expressly, a culture of, as it were, who is inside the wire and outside the wire. So in, uh, if you're an officer operating from the base inside the wire, you do not question culturally uh, those who spend their uh, operational deployment working outside the wire, jeopardizing their life to achieve uh, mission goals. Um, and very often officers would remain on base. It would be patrol commanders who would be leading small groups of special forces on uh, missions outside the wire. And the job of um, a junior officer would be to uh, observe deployments from a distance, call in air support if needed, and potentially post incident, but not invariably go and see a compound once it had been captured. But so th there's both a cultural element here, but also a firewalling, right? If those inside the wire don't necessarily go outside the wire, how are they going to know what those on patrol are doing? And there are solid military reasons potentially for leaving junior officers in, um, as it were, uh, back at headquarters in what was referred to as an overwatch role. Okay. Um, as we've said, the geography is very challenging. Uh, also, special forces come themselves with a culture of compartmentalization of information that you only uh, tell people what they need to know, that you hold information closely, that you don't um, dis uh, disgorge it willy-nilly. So the idea being here that um, all of these elements add up to a situation where if a patrol commander wants to keep something in his unit and not let anyone else know, they're in a very good position to contain that information and indeed actively prevent officers um, finding out what has occurred. There's also a question, you'll get different views on this depending on who you speak to, but of the power balance between junior officers and non-commissioned officer patrol commanders. That is um, an actual SAS patrol going out uh, into the field, the so conducting operations, uh, the so-called operators, will be led by a uh, non-commissioned officer, a sergeant. They could have up to 15 years of experience and at this point uh, in operations in Afghanistan have done many tours in Afghanistan and be experienced and highly respected veterans. Um, a junior officer uh, might be uh, relatively early in their career. They might be a relatively recent graduate from the Australian Defence Force Academy. They might be on their first or second deployment to Afghanistan, where they might only stay for a period of six months before being rotated out. Further, in the culture of the Australian Army uh, and many other armies, it is the job of the non-commissioned officers uh, to help train the junior officers. Uh, so in a sense, you'll have a captain of the SAS who is um, the commanding officer of the NCO patrol commander, but that person has up to 15 years experience, is potentially regarded, and the report literally uses this terminology as a demigod by the troopers under their command and has a responsibility for the further training of that junior officer. And so the power to make or break the careers of junior officers very often rests with these highly experienced and often very charismatic NCOs. Um, so it's alleged uh, that the misconduct um, peaked in 2012. And as we've said, uh, the experience uh, of the court martial in 2011 uh, didn't result in any convictions. All right, so the question then becomes, what did higher levels of command actually know? Uh, so 
the first thing that pokes a hole in this firewall theory between patrol commanders and other officers is that um, Australian bases in Afghanistan are dry. Uh, the consumption of alcohol is uh, prohibited. SAS operators were allowed to operate uh, essentially an illegal bar where other officers drank. So you were drinking with these people after hours and often drinking to excess. Um, so that might cast some doubt on the, the idea that no information passed across these barriers. Um, the report itself was commissioned because there were persistent rumours of criminal or unlawful conduct. And once the report was commissioned, um, this information came out. Uh, at least one officer, possibly more, had actual knowledge of the practice of using throwdowns. And the report itself discloses that um, throwdowns, in a way, is a sort of unfortunate uh, Australian tradition, or at least something that's been reinvented. Uh, the practice was known in um, the Vietnam War and the deployment of Australians there. Uh, another problem that one would have thought um, response, particularly responsible lawyers would have spotted is the, the thing I've already talked about, that operational reports had begun to use this boilerplate language to describe why certain people had been killed, to indicate or fabricate compliance with rules of engagement. And this was done so frequently and was done with um, the help of legal officers on base uh, that a new directive on reporting had to be issued. In, in essence, people had to be told, you can't keep reporting things like this. The reports aren't telling us anything useful anymore. Uh, and one would have thought that should have sent alarm bells if you're actually receiving reports that just use copy pasted language rather than accurately describing what's happening, that that might suggest there's a need for further inquiry. And finally, and potentially most damningly, um, local Afghan nationals repeatedly complained uh, that unlawful killings were occurring. They either complained directly or relayed these complaints through the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. And these were received, but invariably dismissed as either being the result of insurgent propaganda or compensation seeking by locals. So there was no mentality that these things should be taken with a degree of seriousness exhibited by uh, ADF legal officers, it seems. All right, um, so where does that get us to? Uh, so if we think about the applicable international law of command responsibility as pioneered um, most recently uh, by the uh, tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, we have uh, three classic elements. There has to be the existence of a superior subordinate relationship, which within a conventional military is obviously not in question. Uh, one has to show that the superior failed to take uh, reasonable and available measures to prevent or punish the crimes of subordinates. Uh, we have to identify the culpable mental state. They have to have known enough, uh, at the very least, that they should have done something to be guilty as uh, a commanding officer. And the Rome Statute adds a further element of causation, that the crimes that eventuated must have occurred as a result of the superior's failure to act. All right, so that's the international law. And we now find that in terms of treaties to which Australia subscribes, in Article 28A of the ICC Statute, which tells us that a military commander shall be criminally responsible for international crimes committed by forces under his or her effective command and control as a result of his or her failure to exercise control properly over such forces. And this is the important bit uh, where the military commander either knew or owing to the circumstances at the time should have known that the forces were committing or about to commit such crimes. And 
uh, that the military commander failed to take all reasonable and necessary measures um, within their power uh, to prevent them. Okay, so the Australian mirroring law is found in the Australian Criminal Code, which is annexed to the Criminal Code Act of 1995 in section 268.115, um, which you'll see pretty neatly mirrors at first the language of the Rome Statute, but then changes the required mental state and says that the military commander either knew, same language as the Rome Statute, or owing to the circumstances at the time was reckless as to whether the forces were committing or about to commit such offences. And again, then goes on to the fairly, um, fairly standard conclusion. So the critical bit here is this phrase was reckless. Now this hasn't been done, I think, with any um, reasoning other than trying to take a uh, mental state standard in the Rome Statute that's not familiar to Australian law and translate it into an Australian legal concept. But the question is what consequences that may have. So how do we apply the law to the facts? Um, very briefly, uh, just to sort of narrow in the critical issues, the existence of a superior subordinate relationship is obviously not in dispute. Uh, it also appears that no particular investigatory or disciplinary action or any effective action was taken prior to 2016. Um, so inaction isn't really in dispute. Um, what causation means, the fourth element under the Rome Statute uh, is untested. Um, we can perhaps talk about it in Q&A, but in the interest of time, I'll move on. Um, it's either, but essentially it's either a low threshold or a non-requirement would be my summary. So the question then becomes um, the mens rea. Uh, so the report on its face does not show that any officer actually knew the crimes were occurring. They knew a range of other facts, but, that, but didn't have knowledge of the crimes per se. So the question then is what is required um, by the ICC or Australian law. So we've got the contrast between owing to the circumstances at the time should have known, the ICC standard, or owing to the circumstances at the time was reckless, the Australian standard. Uh, so I'd call this the constructive knowledge question. You know, at what point does someone know enough that they should have done more, essentially? And the only case we have on point at the ICC uh, under Article 28 is BEMBA. Um, and here the case law is not very helpful to us. So the pre-trial chamber laid out a very stringent test following the ICTY case law. Um, the trial chamber did not consider the issue at all because it found actual knowledge to be made out. And the appeals chamber acquitted on a different question entirely, but there were dicta statements in separate opinions about this question. Um, but if the pre-trial chamber was correct about what Article 28 means, it took up what it called the deliberately stringent standard in cases from the ICTY such as Blaskich, which boils down to the idea that superiors are under an active duty to acquire information about their subordinates' activities, but cannot be held liable for them if they exercise due diligence. Um, and the question then becomes, well, what does that standard mean in practice? Uh, so Bemba then went on to say, applying this ICTY case law, uh, that the suspect may be considered to have known if inter alia and depending on the circumstance of each case, he had general information to put him on notice of uh, crimes committed by subordinates or the possibility of the occurrence of unlawful acts and such in the information available was sufficient to justify further investigation. So that is, you know enough to be put on notice that you need to investigate. That's essentially what it boils down to. Um, and I would say that is 
consistent with other elements of ICTY case law and judges uh, Vanden Weingarten and Henderson appear to endorse that approach in the appeals chamber. But as I say, the appeals chamber doesn't rule on that authoritatively. So where do we land under Australian law? Well, under this Commonwealth Criminal Code, a person is reckless with respect to a result if they're aware of a substantial risk the result will occur and having regard to the circumstances known it's unjustifiable to take the risk. Um, so one of the questions here is, well, what's the, what's the result element? Is it the occurrence of any war crime or the war crime actually charged in the proceedings in question? So the difficulty here becomes that, um, well, for example, you know, were the complaints by Afghan nationals enough to create an awareness of a substantial risk and in whom? Uh, it appears that many of these inquiries were conducted by different inquiry officers. People had different parts of the problem, but weren't necessarily seeing a pattern. Um, yes. And that's the point I've already made. Um, the other problem is the best evidence we've got for potential war crimes involves the rules of engagement violations and the use of throwdowns. Um, and we could say, well, that could build a claim for superior responsibility if we have to show a particular crime. But the problem with that is what would the underlying crime be? If it's a willful killing or murder of a civilian, that's going to be hard to prove in a heat of battle context. Um, the next sort of policy question is how far should command responsibility extend? And is the Brereton report being too harsh in or too generous in cutting it off at the patrol commander level? Well, judges Vanden Weingarten and Morrison in the Bemba Appeals Chamber come out and say, the primary obligation to prevent, repress, refer criminal behavior rests upon the immediate commander of the physical perpetrators. That is the platoon or section commander, here the patrol commander. In principle, higher level commanders are thus entitled to rely on lower level commanders to keep their troops in check it is not the task of higher level commander to micromanage all lower level commanders or to do their jobs for them. Um, now, that is only two of five judges in the appeals chamber, but that sounds very sympathetic to the kind of approach taken in the Brereton report. And obviously, uh, Bember is remembered for involving the controversial acquittal of a commander who is said to be structurally and physically remote from the crimes, which again begins to sound a lot like perhaps Australian Defence Force commanders who are operating um, back at headquarters. All right, so the next question becomes, well, if Australia doesn't prosecute these superior officers, could the International Criminal Court, could someone wind up in The Hague as a responsible superior if Australia doesn't prosecute? So uh, one question would, one way of framing the question would be, if Australia can't prosecute a superior because it has incorporated the wrong legal standard, um, or because we hold command responsibility stops at the patrol level, could the ICC step in? The first thing we have to remember is that under Article 17, we start with the question, is a national system, and I'm editorialising, but it boils down to, is a national system currently investigating? Has a national system prosecuted the individual in the past? Or has a national system bona fide investigated and come to a conclusion that it will not proceed? And if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then the case is inadmissible unless we can prove that that country is unable or unwilling genuinely to prosecute. So admissibility jurisprudence is focused to date on a so-called same person, same conduct test. The mode of liability, the, the reason why someone is responsible for the crime doesn't seem relevant to that test on its face, nor does it seem relevant to the concept of a country being unable to prosecute a crime, which is meant to focus on 
more structural questions. This is not to say the ICC couldn't surprise us. It frequently does with its jurisprudence, but as a sort of first cut of the issues, it doesn't seem to charging someone as it were under a mode of liability where you've incorporated a different standard from the ICC uh, doesn't seem a good fit. So the point is uncertain and I'd argue it's perhaps unlikely to be tested. I'm not sure that the International Criminal Court is going to want to step in and uh, attempt to prosecute a handful of Australian officers if Australia goes on to show that it is prosecuting these crimes as it were in general. So the other question I'm often asked is, is this a victory for positive complementarity? Does this show that the existence of the International Criminal Court has galvanised a national system into action? And if so, doesn't, isn't that sort of a win indirectly for the ICC or the concept of positive complementarity? Uh, I'd just say that we need to distinguish initiating the investigation. The investigation does not appear to have come about in any sense because of the existence of the ICC. It came about because of Dr. Crumpet's report and was given as it were um, further uh, urgency by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's material. Um, in terms of how the investigation was conducted, there are lots of passages in the Brereton report where it talks about the need for an investigation like this to ensure that Australians are tried before Australian courts and where there's references to engaging with the ICC prosecutor. So it certainly influenced, at least at the margins, the conduct of the investigation. And on proceeding to establishment of the Office of the Special Investigator, um, I think uh, the existence of the ICC and the possibility of it stepping in was at least, at least put some weight in the scales. I'd still say uh, the Australian media, media reporting had far more, um, far more influence, but in terms of perhaps giving uh, politicians comfort that as it were, there's nothing else that can be done uh, we know that the Prime Minister had legal advice that there would be the possibility of the ICC stepping in if we did not prosecute ourselves. Uh, but taking a um, decision not to prosecute, I think, would have been at least as controversial as taking the decision to prosecute. Uh, and I will leave it at that.